right. Welcome to episode two of um, Give Me an Argument, which is the admittedly cheesy title of a uh, new project that I'm very excited about, which is, of course, The Colin Show, which is probably not an idea that would have occurred to me on my own, but when it was presented to me, I very quickly realized that it would be a really good format for what I'm interested in doing uh, because, uh, you know, I'm obviously somebody who has always enjoyed arguing about ideas I find interesting, even when there's no disagreement present. I've always found conversations more interesting than monologues and will not deny uh, sometimes enjoying the sound of my own voice. Uh, but I do get bored talking to myself. And I'm really excited that the first actual guest uh, today is Nathan Robinson. Episode one was just an Ask Me Anything, which is really fun. There were questions ranging from, um, you know, panpsychism to postmodernism to the DSA and Jamal Bowman. Uh, but this is the first one with a guest. And the guest is current affairs editor Nathan Robinson, who's somebody who I've known for a long time somebody who I've been reading for much longer than that. Uh, and I do not always agree with him, uh, although I often do, but uh, he's somebody who I consistently really enjoy reading. Like he has a way of writing that is both extremely clear and very rigorous and very unpretentious. Like that, that just sort of takes you in with this kind of attitude of, Hey, I'm trying to figure this stuff out for my, you know, on my own uh, at the, at the same time that I'm talking to you about it, but you know, here's what I've kind of figured out. Here's my reasoning. And, you know, you always feel like you're sort of being invited along, which whether I actually agree or disagree with any give and take is something I always really appreciate. Are you there? I am here. Am I coming through? Right. <laughs> yes. Oh, yes, my coming. Yes. Uh, you are coming through. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I want to, uh, want to start taking calls in, uh, in just a minute, but, um, but I guess, uh, before that, you know, want to just talk about a little bit of, of what you've been up to. I do not think it's a state secret that you haven't had the best year ever, but, uh, oh <laughs> but <That's>, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that gentle euphemism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, you know, I started off the year getting fired. I, oh, that's I true. began that's the true. year by getting fired from the uh, Guardian newspaper. The Guardian, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's... Uh, and then... Yes. But... Uh, yeah, that's right. The, uh, for, uh, for, for your anti-Semitism. Oh, yes, it was anti-Semitism. I forgot. I, I sometimes forget why the paper canned me, and uh, I, then I remember that it was anti-Semitism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, joking about is... Israel, which you don't do if you're a member of the, uh, the mainstream press. Yeah, apparently. Um, yeah, well, despite your anti-Semitism, uh, I, have been, I have been glad, you know, that, that after that, uh, that not great... Uh, you know, all of the other not great developments this year, which I'm sure will come up and we can talk about. Uh, but after that, uh, that you are back to publishing, you know, in the last couple of months. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, that, that you're, that you're doing your, your thing, you know, because, cause I always really do want to see, you know, what the, the Nathan, uh, the Nathan take on things is. 
Uh, there are. I was just kind of looking yeah. over a couple of articles in uh, in current affairs that that I would really like to uh, to bring up uh, at uh, sure. you know at some point. Uh, but I do not want to uh, to go on in this vein uh, for too much longer because uh, because I do want to um, I do want to start taking calls. Uh, but I, I guess. Yeah, so I, I guess let's just go straight to that, and then like, and then you know, and then we'll kind of work in my stuff in a you know, a hopefully not too unnatural sure. way as it sure. goes on. Uh, so let's yeah. uh, let's start out with Luke. Hey, Luke. There we go. Uh, you might have to. There we go. Howdy. Hey, Luke. Um, so I wanted to talk to you guys about uh, blockchain and crypto because both of you guys have had a lot of criticisms. Uh, I think they're all. Extremely accurate by and large, it is a space infused with Randians and bad Austrian economics and lots of scams, lots of con artists. Um, <laughs> but I kind of want to make a case for why the left should not ignore yeah. crypto and, and okay. uh, distributed Let's measures, it. as it mm-hmm. were. And, and I am actually involved in a community, the, the crypto leftist subreddit, as well as the blockchain socialism community. And there They're are actual projects. And granted, a lot of them are early stage. You know, like most projects, a lot of them are going to fail, but uh, there are actual kind of a, a coalition of Marxists and leftist anarchists that are working on some really interesting projects. And I can highlight a few, I can go into details, but at the high level, the case I want to make is just because a spreadsheet can be used by a CEO to calculate layoffs or to do horrible things uh, does not mean the left is better off by going, we should not use spreadsheets. And so I kind of want to make the case that distributed ledgers are a way of accomplishing spreadsheets in a way that kind of makes them smarter, gives them access control, you know, gives both uh, kind of fungible and non-fungible, qualitative and quantitative uses, things like that. So like I said, I can highlight some projects, I can kind of unpack the comparison, but at a high level, what are your thoughts about sort of, uh, you know, this is fundamentally a tool, even if it was invented by horrible Randians, this is a tool that the left can use. Yeah. Uh, before before you go, Nathan, if I could just jump in for a second, because uh, yeah. I guess yeah. I would like to clarify a little bit the scope of this, because you know, certainly speaking for myself, uh, when I have talked about crypto, like the it's it's been very specifically about cryptocurrency. And, uh, and whether, you know, and whether crypt and whether cryptocurrency, like whether that could like actually function as a real currency, whether it would be a good thing if it did, uh, all, all of that stuff. Right. So, which I, my sense Mm -hmm. is that it might be related, but it's a little bit different from what you're talking about. But I mean, look, I would agree that just because horrible people develop something is not in itself, uh, a a reason a reason not to use it, but uh, but I think that you know I think that even if we pretended that that like cryptocurrency was was first dreamed up by you know like uh, this was this was something that uh, that was that was originally dreamed up by pristine leftists working in you know Trotsky laboratories, uh, then that I I think all the criticisms of that would still apply. But again, I'm not sure how how much that intersects with what you're asking about. Yeah, I think uh, I, I totally accept the point that you make that tools are independent of the intentions and, and politics of their creators. And in fact, of course, someone 
else who would agree with that is Karl Marx himself, right? <laughs> who believed that mm-hmm. you know, capitalism developed the productive power so that we, the socialists, could seize them and use them to create uh, universal wealth and uh, prosperity for all. Um, so that's, that's, I think, that, that point of we shouldn't discard, we shouldn't hear the word blockchain and just assume that someone is a, is a, a, a libertarian uh, uh, you know, uh, I always have the word crypto fascist, which I realize is a pun, and I don't mean to make a pun. But I think <laughs> that's it. So, um, and uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. I would be interested, Luke, but I am interested. So, so um, you're not talking about cryptocurrency. You're talking about the uses, leftist uses of blockchain technology, and you say that there are a number of cases in which the the blockchain technology is, in fact helpful to left projects and we should pay attention to it. So maybe you could uh, explain what you think these, these things are. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I think the better term than blockchain, which is kind of a neologism that, you know, was invented after the fact uh, is distributed ledgers, right? So, okay. you know, you, a spreadsheet is a ledger. It's got a distributed ledger is instead of it being hosted with Google sheets, it's hosted with everybody. Everybody can run their own copy. And then you sort of have consensus mechanisms. And one of those consensus mechanisms is proof of work, which I agree is a disaster and it should be not outlawed. It is a severe problem. But there are other consensus mechanisms besides proof of work. So there's proof of stake, there's proof of burn, there's, you know, there's trustful ledgers like hollow chains where you don't have to say, I, I'm distrusting everybody. You say explicitly, I'm trusting people. So um, you know, one example is there's a distributed UBI project called Circles. And for the record, I'm not vouching for any of these. So do your own homework. Mm. There's still tons of scams, even if they talk leftism, right? So, uh, but so yeah, I'm not I'm not involved in any of these. But you know, there's distributed UBI projects where you're basically kind of uh, gaining currency in the form of like community credit relationships or community trust relationships. Uh, there are worker co-ops that are uh, coordinating using uh, blockchains of mutual aid projects. There's an interesting one going on in New York called Pact DAO. Uh, a DAO is a distributed autonomous organization. So it's kind of like a corporation without a CEO where uh, it, there's different rules of governance. There's different sort of methodologies for how decisions are made. But it's essentially a purpose-based organization with no leaders that exists purely in the technology and in the community. Uh, there's the distributed co-op mu- uh, movement. So disco.coop is their website. They've got a fascinating manifesto. So they, these are just some sort of uh, some highlights. Um, like I said, a lot of these projects are early stage. Um, but there, there are a lot of interesting use cases for the technology. And so I think rather than, um, you know, saying, oh, this whole space is infested with people whose politics we don't like, and I don't like them either, um, you know, instead of going, these are these are value neutral tools, right? And ultimately, all it is, is a distributed database that we can then embed with semantic meaning and value, right? And that can be like raising funds for, you know, a a, uh, general strike, you know, uh, that can be, you know, coordinating union dues, that's all sorts of things. Can I, can I ask you a question, Luke? Uh, what do you see as the advantage that is provided by the distributed ledger technology that is not already available? When you say you know it can be used to raise money for for strike funds, what what, is, what does it mm-hmm. enable you to do that you wouldn't be able to do if you were just raising money for a strike fund? I mean, I think the biggest thing is that you can't be shut down by payment processors or the state. 
Uh, and so the founder of SciHub, who openly calls that project a communist project, uh, she was recently on the Blockchain Socialist podcast and talked about that even though she doesn't like the politics of Bitcoin specifically, it allowed her to continue to raise funds and keep, keep afloat uh, even when PayPal shut down her account. And so a lot of leftist movements have real problems in dealing with, you know, banks and PayPal and so forth. So, I mean, that's just but, one advantage. Yeah. But couldn't the state step in at any point and change that? Well, I mean, the state could do a lot of things, but uh, it's, it's not really yeah. working, you know, on our behalf very effectively right now. Well, um, sure. But the, the question, I think, is whether this is actually more secure against state action uh than than like just not you know than than other than other mechanisms are which you know i mean it could be uh you know although i think that's a little bit of an open question i mean my understanding is that uh a lot of this technology actually makes it easier to like figure out chains of funding and stuff like that than than not but um Sure, sure. It, it is a trade-off. It is not a panacea to be sure. You're, you're trading one set of problems for a different set of problems. So um, some of the, I mean, in terms of kind of conventional, uh, you know, like Bitcoin specifically and a lot of other chains, you can sort of de-anonymize. There are other blockchain projects that are better at baking anonymity into it, but no security is perfect. Even if the crypt cryptography is perfect, there are other vectors of attack. So it is by no means a perfect panacea. The, the big thing it gives you a, a permission small and build up in a peer-to-peer -peer manner and cards on the table i i lean more towards uh you know leftist anarchism than uh kind of you know democratic socialism per se but i'm open-minded i'm not you know doctrinaire i'm not against yeah, well, well i think, I, think that might... I do want i do like the idea of self-organizing and people building up their own networks as opposed to trying to coordinate via central authorities as the only path to organizing yeah, I mean, I think this this does get down to a sense, you know, that I often get when I, I hear stuff like what you're saying, which is that, um, like, certainly some of the things that you describe, you know, strike funds and so on are, thing, are things that I support and I think are important. And if uh, they, the use of some of this technology makes it easier, then, you know, great, use it. I'm all for it. Um, but uh, I think... I, again, I, I first want to make a distinction between that and like the sort of claims made on behalf of the potential of cryptocurrency that I think are just wrong. Uh, but secondly, even sure. with regard to a yeah. lot of this stuff, I, I mean, it seems like, you know, I, I'm very suspicious, for example, you know, one of the first phrases you used was distributed UBI. Uh, you know, when I hear stuff like that, because mm -hmm. I think, well, no, that's not a UBI. That's that's just uh, that, that's just private right. charity. I mean, like like, like whatever you want to, um, you know, like like however you want to dress it up. I mean, that's essentially what we're we're talking about, which is just a radically different thing. And I'd, I'd be very ideologically hostile to blur it that line because I think it's I think. It's yeah, it's a weird analogy because it isn't properly UBI. I think of it more like distributed trust or distributed credit because it, it's not like you just get money in your bank account, right? It's that you get a certain amount of trust from other people in your network that then forms like a credit relationship with the entire network. So the way I look at it is uh, it's really more of a question of distributed intelligence and distributed coordination. And then if you backport money or currency, as this has been our mechanism for better and for worse of distributed coordination and distributed mm. value exchange anonymously. Uh, and it's really bad at it. 
right? If you think of money as a value database, the fact that it destroys information at every hop, uh, the, the fact that like, you know, it, it's not pegged to anything. Yeah. Well, although, like, like, although, of course, of course, of course, that objection pulls in the opposite direction of the, the better claims for anonymity. Sure. No. And, and the, there are tensions there. Right. And so it's it's uh, again, none of this is perfect. It's all trade offs. So yeah, I, 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 I agree mean, with you that crypto is bad currency. Right. But I will also argue that currency is bad currency. So well, I think I think I think crypto is much worse currency in every way than, than, than actual money. I mean, like, I, I don't think that there's any world in which crypto could play the role that's played by actual money. I think that the only way to do that, as we're seeing right now, is through actual like state coercion to force people to accept it. Uh and uh, and 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 that like sure. if you do sure. that it's going to be an absolute disaster you know which we which we're seeing you know which we're seeing play it out I mean it's 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 worse for ordinary people I think in every way if it tries to play the role that uh, that that currency plays I think what it's what it's good for is largely two things which one I mean it's just you know as speculative asset that like if you buy up a bunch of a speculative asset at the right time mm-hmm. you can make money nobody denies that. Um, and, uh, and then it's, it's also good right. for, uh, for, uh, you know, to a, to an extent, although despite the trade-offs we've been talking about, it can be good for, you know, for keeping certain things secret in some ways, which, you know, has legitimate uses. That's fine. Right. You know, but is also mm-hmm. something that I, I'm very skeptical about the, the scale at which, um, at which that's useful and good. And I also think they're really important political trade-offs there. Like, because I don't think that, you know, like, like there's no, right. you know, distributed UBI, mutual aid, anything like that, that I think could ever substitute for, um, like state social spending. Uh, and, um, and, you know, just mm-hmm. to, to go ahead and, and, and piss off another group of, of, uh, of leftists. I, I, I do in fact think that like taxation <laughs> pays for social spending. Uh, you know, oh, oh yeah. God. You're getting callers, Ben. You're get callers. <laughs> so, well, so an interesting kind of you know additional track uh, to to look at this through. Um, there's a guy named Rohan Gray who is kind of an NNT uh, advocate, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I'm not a full yeah. born you know full blown MMT guy, but I'm open minded to it. And he has a proposal for privacy preserving digital cash, and uh, he has sort of a traps a middle ground between hey you know I don't want crypto to be outlawed but we also need to acknowledge some of the scams, particularly with like, you know, uh, tether coins and things that are supposedly backed by the dollar when they're really not. Um, and so he has a program that basically says, here's how the U.S. can implement a digital currency that has a lot of the upsides of crypto, but still has the anonymity of cash and still is kind of respectful of, of user needs. It's not necessarily to replace the dollar, but essentially to outcompete crypto with the state. So I, I recommend you know doing some research on him. Very interesting guy. Um, but at any rate, I, the, the the thing I, I would you know highlight is that I think currency model to look at this. I think it's just looking at it as information, right, as a database, and that database can have any manner of semantic meanings as decided by its users. And because we're so you know we're infused with capitalist realism, of course we take this technology and turn it into money because we see everything in terms of money, right? And in terms of you know. Is, is it a good investment? Is it a good user experience for the average person compared to dollars? Probably not, right? Um, so in that sense, I very much agree with you that it is not a good currency. But I think it is a, a valuable technology that is still being explored that can be used in a lot of different ways that are not simply as a speculative asset. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I have nothing against the the underlying technology itself, and and there could very well be uses of it that that I would I would like. Again, I will I will say that that every time I sort of hear people doing the uh, you know the leftist uh, case. Either it's what, to be fair, you have not done, which is the claim that it's better for international transfers to like people in in countries that you know that are where you know for various reasons it's hard to do those transfers, which is you know for the most part just wrong and importantly wrong. It's actually usually worse, but right. uh, but either that or it's this very um, you know anarchisty mutual aidy stuff, which. Um, I, I I mean mm-hmm. I, I mean God bless anybody who who's into that. I I just you know I have um, probably more so than Nathan. I'm guessing right. You know like like I have this sort of um, old fashioned socialist sort of view that like none of that is going to be a very effective uh, mechanism for uh, for social change. Right. I mean I, I I pretty much I pretty much think that like organizing the workplace and organizing right. for, for political action, you know, through, through the state are, are the things that are, you know, the main effective mm-hmm. mechanisms and, uh, and, and that like, if, if like mutual aid, like helps people uh, in, in an immediate way, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously all for that, but I, I, I just, I, I'm very wary, very wary of mistaking that for a political strategy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I- yeah, I'm your more sympathetic audience yeah. here, Luke, because Ben loves the state. So you're not gonna <laughs> you're not gonna convince Ben not to love the state. But here, I'm curious though. I, I still I still wish you could tell me just a, a little more about. I, I was a little confused when you say like distributed trust networks. Could you describe maybe in practice, you know what what these kinds of things mean and how they would work? in a way that you feel I, I I'm still a little confused about, I mean, sure. I like it conceptually. Um, sure. Well, I, I guess one way to look at it is that, uh, you know, what, what is sort of the, the root node of kind of civic engagement or our relationships with one another, right? It's like, uh, you know, state would be essentially kind of a compound of, you know, human rights, and the, the uh, you know, the lawful use of violence, whether that is outsourcing it to the monopoly degree of, you know, here's my personal right to self-defense, right? And so that kind of builds up. So sort of the, the you know, quote unquote, crypto analogy, which granted is very much right anarchist, uh, you know, in, in a lot of its origins, but it is, uh, is essentially, instead, it was replacing violence with secrets. It's the idea that, you know, uh, you, you can hit me in the head with a wrench over and over again. I refuse to tell you my password. And the fact that I have that password gives me power. And so the entire crypto stack is based upon that root node of, I know a private key, I know some secret, and that gives me an ability to do things in this network I cannot do. Now that does have problems because people are bad at passwords and computers. Economy. And one way of doing that is with these crypto assets. With I know this password, therefore I own, you know, a million dollars of Bitcoin. But that can also be, this is my identity within this worker co-op, this, uh, you know, paid uh. and so forth. Um, so uh. that's at a very high level. The thing that I would really highlight is that there was definitely a mistake in early Silicon Valley that we build the ideal technology 
even under open source ideals, then people will just come together. The world will unite in this utopia. And that didn't happen. And so the, the new approach is sort of, we're going to design the community values first, and then we're going to implement the technology around those values. And that is the thing that I think has a lot more promise. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I have, you know, one of the, uh, you know, one of the reasons I love the state is that it can stop people from hitting people with wrenches until they, they, they divulge their passwords. Uh, <laughs> sure. And, uh, and, and, and another actually has to, you know, I, I, I don't love the state, but, you know, just running with that, uh, just running with that. <laughs> I'm sorry, that, that was a slander upon, by me. <laughs> you know, another reason I think it's perhaps, despite its many flaws, a necessary social institution uh, has to do with, with precisely that point about, um, you know, about passwords and all of that, right? That, uh, that, um, you know that if you um you know if you have a uh you know if if you have money in a in a bank and you uh and you lose your your password as as people do all the time uh, then uh then you know you you have mechanisms right. uh for um you know, for, for recovering it, which, you know, which, which perhaps you could replicate it here. Although I, I, there are going to be problems with some of the claimed benefits, the more you try to replicate that. Uh, and, uh, and more importantly though, cause you know, that's ultimately a technical problem and, you know, whatever, you know, you can fix technical problems. Uh, you know, I, I think that the, you know, one, one reason why, um, you know, especially for anything that involves money or something that's functioning as 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 money. You know that it's it's good to have, um, you know that that it is actually good for things to to be to be regulated. You know, by larger collective institutions. Uh, is is that mm-hmm. uh, if you know if I'm um, you know if, if I'm defrauded, you know either either by the bank or or just by individual bad actors, you know then. Uh, that I would like to have mechanisms for for being able to to mm-hmm. do something about it, right? In fact, I will actually see crypto advocates uh, listing the lack of that as an advantage. Right. You know that you can't have reversals, which is just insane from the point of view right. of a uh, right. <laughs> of an ordinary <laughs> of an or- ordinary user. You know, so but 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 again, oh, yeah. I mean, we're we're getting back to um, you know we're getting back to its use as money. I understand that that's not you know your primary thing. Uh, I I think. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I and and if we're not talking about money, then like I have no fundamental objection. But I'm also, um, you know, I I also do get a little bit of the feeling sometimes when I hear this stuff of like, uh, of like hearing mm-hmm. you know somebody say like here's a way, you know, here's this technology that you know allows us to. I don't know. It allows us to live at like the, uh, on the, on the, the ocean floor. Uh, and, and I say, Oh, okay, that's cool. Uh, why, why do we want to do that? Right. Why do we want to live on the ocean floor? And, sure. uh, and then sure. people will say, well, you know, we, we could, we could have meetings there. I'm like, okay, but we could have meetings up here, you know, and uh, they'll say, Oh, but they're all these. <laughs> this is a bad example, Ben. Cause I want to live on the ocean. Floor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, you want to see the manatees and whatever. Yeah. yeah. And that sounds awesome. <laughs> you know? Why wouldn't you, what? <laughs> you know, but I, but I, I, you know, but then I see... meetings surrounded by sea life. 
you know, Sorry. see people say like, oh, but there are all these leftist uses because we can I, have a worker co-op that has like management yeah. meetings on the ocean floor. It's like, oh, okay, right? But like, well, why can't we just do that, you know, on, on dry land? And uh, and perhaps in, in this example, I've lost Nathan, but, you know, I, I think I think you well, get dry the, land. the general uh, the, the general point. So I'm, I'm, I'm open to the stuff that you're saying, but I feel like oftentimes the, the what I feel is the missing element is like a, a sort of clearer explanation of this is why it's you have an advantage doing it this way as opposed to doing it another way, and that this advantage is important. And maybe you know maybe this some of the stuff is just sure. early stages. And, you know what's it's like tested out more. Some of the advantages sure. will get bigger and more obvious. So my, my case for these, you know, systems engineering feedback loops, right? That, uh, you know, I think we would all agree there's a lot of improvements that could be made upon democracy uh, as, as it is realized currently. Um, but one of the big failures is that it is a very, very slow feedback loop. You know, that, that just the activation energy to, to start a new third party and to create a shelling focus around, no, you're not throwing your vote away. This third party can actually win. Uh, sure, there's right choice voting. There's proportional representation, like with democracy, all sorts of things. But it's still very slow. And so the, the ability to coordinate outside of, you know, two-year cycles uh, is, is, I think, very valuable. And I don't think it's necessarily going to replace the state, replace conventional economics, any of those things. Um, it is a, a new tool. I mean, the one thing I like to think about is what would it be like to try to conceive of a constitutional democracy from first principles in a world that had the internet, right? And that may look crypto-ish. That may not look crypto-ish. There's other centralized ways to do it. Centralized things are not always bad. Um, on, on the subject of password security, you're totally right. But keep in mind that the alternative to that is a lot of people just end up outsourcing their identity to quasi-feudal corporations. And so they go, okay, I'll use my Google identity to authenticate everything. But then if Google shuts down my account, I have no recourse. And I'm suddenly vanished from the internet, which happens all the time. Um, so it, again, it's a trade-off. There, there is something to, you know, you want to own your identity, own your security, which means you're on the hook if something goes wrong and you have no recourse. Versus you're going to outsource that to a corporation, to the state, which has lots of advantages. I'm not saying that's that strategy, but it does mean if the corporation just shuts. Um, so I, I, it's not that it's we should all move to this thing and it's going to replace everything. I think we need a sort of um, you know a, a, a kind of picket, right? That even in the context of a high functioning social democracy or high functioning democratic socialism. Uh, you know, having these ways to coordinate independently of that and, and at scale. That's the other advantage, right, is that uh, have a local neighborhood meeting for an HOA. But the more that mm. you scale that, the more it gets prohibitively difficult and you end up having to reach out to centralized solutions and go or run my neighborhood for me. Yeah, no, I... Yeah, I got you. I, I mean, I, I could see, I could, I could see some advantages there. Although I also think the the flip side is, um, I, I mean, I would, <laughs> you know, perhaps this this will go along with the the uh, the, the uh, quasi Stalinist image that's been painted on me here. But I think that the uh, 
you know, I, I, I also tend to think um, that direct democracy is really overrated in most contexts that, uh, uh, that, you know, most people, I think very rationally, uh, you know, loathe the idea of, of spending their, their lives in, in meetings, you know, that, that I, you know, and, um, and, and, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Like, like he makes the point, right. You know, you've got that YouTube video, uh, you know, plea for bureaucratic socialism. It's a jokey title, but I mean, his point is like, uh, that, um, you know, he, he uses the example of like water, gas, and electricity he says, look, I want to have the, the relationship to these things that I never have to think about them. You know, uh, the idea of, of like being in, you know, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm in like meetings all the time to, you know, to govern them, you know, sounds uh, dystopian. Uh, and, and so I'm a big fan of, of representative democracy. Now, I think that, uh, I, I, I mean, obviously, I think there are disadvantages there. I, I think that the, I think that it's extremely important that you have ways to hold people to account and, and, and recall them if they're not doing what you want and all that stuff. And, and perhaps mm. some of this stuff can, can help with those mechanisms. Mm. Um, I'm not, you know, and, and, and perhaps even, you know, even be integrated into my beloved state, you know, in those, uh, in those, in those, in those sure, capacities. Sure. So fair enough. I'm, um, uh, yeah, I'm I'm open to it. Uh, it's uh, I'm I'm only uh, my my fanatical militancy is is only against the idea of uh, of, of of crypto as actual uh, as actual currency. But thank you so much for the call, Luke. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation, and thank you as well, Nathan. All right. Excellent. Thanks, so, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, which which I, I guess. You know, thinking about that that last point about um, you know about direct democracy uh, does um, you know does in a sort of uh, roundabout way you know get to what we were kind of alluding to at the at the beginning and you know and, and what I think probably does need to be addressed in some form at uh, at some time you know which which is the uh, you know the 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 blow up you know a few months ago at uh, at current affairs and since that happened you know even apart from the sort of like nitty gritty um, of the the you know rights and wrongs and various he's he's uh, saying and she's saying of of that you know it, it did make me think a lot about how you know ideally I would like magazines to be run you know since since that's a that's a question that you know that, that quite apart from whether anybody loves or hates Nathan Robinson. Uh, you know that the left needs to to think about think about stuff like that. You know, and I and I think this question about um, you know direct democracy and you know and indirect democracy and you know and all that really uh, you know really comes up in, in in a big way there. You know, and, and I'll just kind of lay my own cards on the table here and say that um, you know my um, you know my view on this is that. Like a good, um, like a good functional, like worker-owned media enterprise, uh, and and I don't necessarily think everyone has to be right now because this kind of gets back to some of that stuff about anarchism and what's sometimes called prefiguration. You know, the idea that organizations now have to exactly resemble, you know, the uh, you know how you think that things will change in the future. But I think a good worker-owned media organization would still have editors who have the power to act like editors and, and, and all that stuff. Right. Like I, I think 
uh, they would just be like hired by workers committees maybe. And, uh, you know, for like a certain, uh, for a certain term, you know, which, which does, which does get down to like one of my bigger issues with like anarchism and, you know, in terms of organizational models, which is, I think that all high functioning organizations, I think do involve a certain level of necessary operational hierarchy. Uh, which, uh, which you know, I know is actually something that you know you you have a record of of, of saying things that at least sound like you disagree with that, you know. Uh, but uh, you know, but I but I think that you you know, like like you do need like a little bit of of operational hierarchy to make institutions function in practice. I think the bigger question is whether there's some sort of like structure of democratic accountability underlying that. I don't know if you if you have thoughts that you feel like sharing, sharing oh, about that. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's a very difficult question. You know, that's one I've been struggling with uh, recently myself. Is you know how do you how do you have fair uh, how do you how do you have groups of people working together in ways that are fair and what kinds of authority are legitimate? What kinds of authority are illegitimate? Um, what kinds of uh, mechanisms are necessary to hold people accountable? You know, or, uh, do you know how how do you how do you how do you, what is a leftist organization structured like? I mean, this is not just um, not just the every left publication structure. A massive. Oh, sorry, Nathan, you still there? Internal. Yeah. Okay, sorry, I lost you for just a second. You were, you... Oh, sorry. This is um, this is something that is not just in leftist publications. Uh, it's also some a, like a fundamental question that the DSA has a giant mm-hmm. internal debate over, right? The extent to which they should be a centralized versus decentralized organization, the extent to which um, there should be a party line that everyone has to agree with. And if you don't agree with it, you're out of the organization. The extent to which uh, committees are, uh, you know, steering committees and uh, executive committees are there just to carry out the will of the membership versus the versus to um, give direction to the, to their chapters. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, every, every leftist project, struggles with because and one of the reasons that we struggle with this and that we end up having huge conflicts over this and end up being some of the uh worst offenders in violating our own principles is that we actually have principles we actually think about these questions we actually struggle with them and so we actually have a lot of uh, you know of, of failures and conflicts in our efforts to try and answer the very very difficult and i think impossible question of what does what does what does justice look like? What does democracy look like? To what extent is full participatory democracy necessary for justice? Uh, to what extent can authority by one human being ever be exerted over another human being? I think I think it's, I think it's really incredibly complicated. No, I, I think I think it is for sure uh, really complicated. I, I mean, I think that my my view certainly is that. Um, you know, the amount of democratic accountability that you have in, in normal capitalist workplaces, which is essentially none is, is too little, right. You know, you need more than none, uh, the, uh, you know, or, you know, for that matter, you know, while, while I'm pissing off various groups of leftists, you know, the, the amount of authority that you, you had in Soviet workplaces, you know, uh, the amount of democratic accountability 
that, you know, that people had uh, in Soviet workplaces, which was also essentially none, uh, you know, is also much too little, you know, but uh, uh, I, you know, I think that, um, but I think saying that the amount of sort of participatory democracy you should have is like a hundred percent. I think, I think is always just kind of a disaster in, in practice. I mean, this, this is like anybody whose, whose memory can stretch back to Occupy Wall Street and, and the sort of, um, you know, and, and, and the Occupy movement more generally and, and the sort of, uh, endless mass meetings, you know, with, uh, with, cons- you know, like jazz hands consensus procedures and all that stuff. I think. You don't like the jazz I, hands? I am. I, um, I, I. I actually actively hate the jazz hands. <laughs> 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 you, you know, David Graeber did a whole book about how Occupy was this great prefigurative uh, moment showing the future of uh, democracy. I take it you don't agree with Jesus, that. Jesus, I hope not. Yeah, it's yeah the, I, the democracy project. It's, uh, I, I, I really hope he's wrong about that because I don't want to live in that world. <laughs> that's, no. that's, that sounds fucking awful to me. I, I have. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I have like, oh. I, I mean, just just the couple of years that I had the kind of job where I had to go to faculty meetings once a month made me want to kill myself. Uh, you know, like I cannot imagine living wow. in the world where, uh, you know, where the the Occupy Wall Street, uh, you know, endless interminable mass meetings, you know, were were the model for for how everything worked. You know, and 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 I think this actually. Um, you know, and I should say too, because uh, I, I don't want anybody to think that the the issues being dodged or anything like that, right? I mean, my understanding of you know what happened at at current affairs is you know there are very few people who who actually had full time positions at at current affairs. It was I, I don't know the number, but it was like single digits. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, but there was five. We moved from three full time people to five full time people this year. Yeah, right. So um, now we're down to two. Now you know, right. <laughs> so um, who are you know? Presumably, I mean, any kind of um, I don't know any co op advocates who think that uh, that somebody who like does a little bit of part time work, you know, for you know for for a co op therefore has to have, you know, full membership rights in the co-op. Like that's, that's a position if it exists, I've never heard of it. Um, so, so that's really the group of people that we're talking about. Uh, and, and my understanding is that most of them actually did have uh, authority through like the editorial board. Uh, and there was one person who didn't, who was a kind of business consultant. And so like, you know, what's, I think a lot of people on the left sort of, heard this language about worker co-ops and stuff and, and, and made assume that you were the owner of this magazine and that people were telling you, Oh, we want it to turn into a co-op. And, uh, and you said, uh, fi on that, you know, you're, 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 I'm sending my secret police to, to, you know, to, to silence you. Uh, or, or at the very least, I think actually a lot of people heard that and, and they heard that in their heads as unionization, which was never the issue at all. Uh, you know, and, and I think a lot of people still think that yeah. that was was what it was. I think the actual issue is. Oh God, I know. Ah, I, I think the actual very frustrating. The actual me. issue, as I understand it, I mean, you can correct me, was like whether one person uh, who didn't have like a a, a, a sort of um, you know who didn't have a formal role in the collective authority structure that ran it would have it or not, and you know if so, did that meant this person would be able to intervene in editorial decisions and you know and all this stuff? Which, uh, whatever you think about the nitty gritty of this, I mean, the idea that there's some great point of left principle here, you know, that always always struck me as 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 insane. You know that that's just uh, that that just seems 
that just seems completely wrong, you know. Now, um, the and it's certainly certainly not anything about unionization or 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 anything like that, you know. Um, you know, which is, I mean, you know, you may be an anti-Semite, you know, but you're not a union buster. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I, I think on the left, the union buster charge is uh, definitely more, even more yeah. discreditable. Uh, oh, no, yeah. I, I, we I, all get I, called I, I anti-Semites. Yeah, yeah. People are sort of used to that and they know not to take it seriously. Uh, yeah. So I, I think that's the, the situation. Uh, I, I mean, and, and I think um, so... You know, again, like, you know, separate from the, the specific instance of current affairs, you know, I think that the larger issue uh, that's that's worth thinking about is, okay, do you have the sort of David Graeber view, which, you know, for all for all of the man's brilliant insights, you know, that's what I definitely disagree with. Uh, the, uh, that like, the, that Occupy Wall Street is a good sort of model for... Uh, for how this stuff should, should work. And like, I, and you know, yeah, I will say every time I hear people advocate the consensus stuff at a certain point at all, it always veers into this idea that there's going to be this wonderful, like spiritual transformation when people realize that this is how they should be going about things. And, and, and I always, that always really gets my, my hackles up. Cause I, I think, well, no, I mean, politics uh, isn't about transforming people. It's about how, you know, figuring out how, people can like live together and not hurt each other very much, you know, given, given all of our, our, our current flaws. Uh, but that also gets into yeah. the, uh, one of the articles that you published or you wrote uh, in current affairs uh, last month that I wanted to ask you about. So maybe uh, before we get our next caller uh, and, and if anybody does want it, if anybody sure. does have questions for, for Nathan, one? you know, get into the queue and I'll, I'll, I'll call on you after this. But um uh, it was it was in mid November. It was a review of a book about human nature. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. This is Rutger Bregman's Human Kind. Yeah. Um. So, so I I did have a fairly uh, specific take uh, about uh, okay. you know, about the underlying topic, but maybe it'd be helpful if you started by kind of telling people uh, what the like what the thesis of the uh, of the book is. Yeah. So, you know, Bregman, if people have seen Bregman before, he's a, a Dutch historian who is the guy who went on Tucker Carlson's show and uh, <laughs> to, to, to talk about – Carlson had him on to talk about Davos and he thought he criticized Davos, but instead he turned on Carlson and, and said, you know, well, you're a millionaire funded by billionaires. Who are you to talk? And Carlson started swearing at him and cut the segment. Yeah. So he, he's a cool guy. Uh, he's written this book called Humankind, A Hopeful History. And he's trying to – he's essentially debunking the pessimistic view of human nature that is, you know, most strongly associated with the right but is not exclusive to the right. Um, and a, a lot of these narratives that suggest that human beings began uh, in this uh, Hobbesian war of all against all, uh, life was nasty, mm. brutish, and short, but then – civilization and enlightenment came along he goes after steven pinker a lot and you know the enlightenment we became mm -hmm. rational we managed to control all these these base instincts but he talks a lot about what's called veneer theory which is that civilization is just this thin veneer and underneath it you know we can descend mm -hmm. Uh, into our primitive, our violent, primitive, primal nature very easily. 
right? And so because that's our nature, um, it, it's, it's, it's sort of underpinning stories like Lord of the Flies, right? Where these, these civilized young boys get on an island and then you know, away from the trappings of civilization. I mean, this is what Golding explicitly said he was trying to illustrate was what human beings would really be like. We're not a cooperative species. We're an antagonistic species, which is why we depend so heavily on the rule of law and private property rights because if we don't have a strong state or if we don't have whatever it is, if we don't have strong cultural norms, mm. if we don't have traditions, yeah, yeah. we will quickly lose that veneer of civilization and everything will fall apart very quickly. And so in the book, he goes through a number of things that are used to justify this and tries to debunk it and show that actually – human beings are more inclined towards cooperation and altruism than that, that story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which, which is certainly plausible. I mean, I know that like the closest real life equivalents of uh, Lord of the flies in terms of scenarios with groups of kids washed up on islands and stuff have gone, have gone very differently from, from the, you know, the story that, that golden tells. Uh, And, I mean, I have no problem thinking that like the Hobbesian stuff is very overstated and, 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 you know, anybody who, anybody who says that to to Tucker Carlson is, is good in, in my book. I mean, this is kind of my, um, you know, like fits in with my uh, grand unified theory of the, uh, of like uh, the point of left media interventions right now, which is that there are lots of subjects that I'm happy to talk about and argue about because either they're inherently interesting or one day, you know, inshallah, they will become politically relevant or both. But I think that the sort of really politically relevant things we can do right now are basically two things. One is sort of push back against disparitarian liberalism that says that um, justice means having a really diverse ruling class. And the other is, um, and the other is, is push back against the absurd populist pretensions of the right, you know, that, that it's developed in, in the last like few years, especially like now that we live in this bizarre world where, you know, Tucker Carlson has has gone from being the ultimate example of the kind of um, you know the kind of Republican that the guys on Chapo used to call bowtie dipshit uh, to uh, to to being this like pseudo populist demagogue, and even people like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz will like call themselves populists and use the word corporate as an insult. Uh, and uh, and talk about the workers. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> they care about the workers, right? You know, even though they even though they don't want to, you know, raise the minimum wage or make it easier to join a union or 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 anything actually that would that would materially benefit um, you know workers as a as a whole. I mean, you know, as, as far as I can tell. The only thing that they do that they claim will benefit even like groups of workers is um, is is like kick out you know some immigrant workers you know that that that's it right I mean that that that's you know like that's the only thing that's actually material that you know that they're going to allegedly like help uh, help native born workers by kicking out immigrants otherwise you know what it is that um, materially they want to they want to do is a is a mystery to me so I'm, I'm all for anybody who calls them on that stuff. Uh, but but I do wonder about the political valence of the human nature arguments because, um, I mean, as far as like the fact of the matter, I mean, I assume that like whatever the truth is is just like incredibly complicated and messy because clearly human beings do act in positive and cooperative and you know compassionate and pro social ways all the time. But 
they also act in the opposite of those ways all the time, right? You know, like uh, there there are people who you know there are there are people who who dedicate you know all their nights and weekends to saving stray cats, and there are also you know there's also like Harvey Weinstein and Jeff Bezos. I mean, like so you know it, it's there's a there's a range, right? Uh, but um, but I, but I do wonder stepping back from what's empirically true about the political valence of it because it it, it sort of seems to me like both. Bregman and the people that he is attacking sort of share this assumption that the more sort of cynical or pessimistic you are about human nature, the more you think that you should think that like, you know, free market capitalism is, you know, is, is the, uh, is the best we can do. Whereas the more you, you, you believe in a sunnier, more optimistic version vision of human nature, uh, the more you know, the more you can be open to the idea that there's like a a better, more cooperative way that we can organize society. And that's always seemed kind of backwards to me. Like, like it always it always seems seems to me like the more worried that you are that mm. one human being given too much power over another is going to uh, to to treat that other like um, you know like a little boy with an insect in a jar or or you know like. Harvey Weinstein treated aspiring actresses or like Jeff Bezos, you know, treats workers as warehouses, the more you should want a society where power is at least relatively equalized. I don't Yeah, I mean I I, I mean I, yeah, you could take it in a couple of different directions. But I think the it is important that I mean, essentially what Bregman is going after is the fact that a view of human nature as being violent or this veneer is used to justify coercion right we have to coerce people into being into being good and if you believe yeah. in that view then you you do believe that we need to do everything possible you do, do believe that a lot of things pose very severe risks to order and and social stability and you and you need to and you need to be very very cautious or else you'll undo social stability and if the if you adopt mm. the alternative view which is that actually we, we are inclined to even in situations of disaster not really revert very quickly to what is seen as as barbarism and tribalism and, and violence um then uh, you're 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 less worried about some of the things that the right uses to generate fear and uses as part of its core argument that changes will cause disaster, which is a big part of why the right succeeds. I mean, I I, I certainly agree with you that if we believe that there is a justification for distributing power as widely as possible if we do have a cynical view of human beings. But we might not actually, I mean, you're not an anarchist, right? Um, we do want on the left to make the case that government will not be, a, a strong government will not inherently be uh. corrupted because everyone is greedy, right? The, uh, what's it, what's it called? The, um, What's the theory of government that the economists have that they call it something? Uh, it, 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 what is? Oh, like public, public choice public theory. Choice public theory. choice theory, which is this is a fun euphemism they uh, use for the theory that essentially, like everyone in government is greedy and out for themselves, and that's always the way it's going to be because they have this 
Friedmanite model of human nature. And if you believe in that model, essentially you don't believe that, that the state should be empowered to do very much because it's inevitably, inevitably going to be full of greedy people because that's what human beings are like. So I do think it is, it, it, there are stakes to the empirical question. You might say, well, regardless of what we are, uh, uh, in, what our nature is, you know, these, these values that we hold on the left are not affected by that. But it is true that if human beings are all the homo economicus, it does affect the kinds of institutions you build, and you may be less able to build the kinds of institutions that we on the left want to build. Yeah, so I mean, I'm certainly not an anarchist. I think there is, like we were talking about before, uh, a certain amount of operational hierarchy that you need to, to make things work. But also, I think that a really good reason to want to limit that with, with, with democratic accountability is precisely the... Uh, the fear of of abuse, you know that that if if you you want to uh, you know you want to be able to you know if if you don't want people to act like Stalin or Jeff Bezos, it's really important that you be able to vote them out of office. Uh, and and I, I, I guess I guess there are really interesting questions to explore there about the extent to which sort of doing the materially redistributive things that we want to do actually counts. As as making the state more powerful, or or, uh, or whether it sort of you know takes kind of an equal amount of state power to enforce existing distribution or to redistribute, uh, and, and those are really interesting questions. But we do have a call, uh, I, I, you know. So it says Matt, although although judging by the obvious, I believe this is actually the uh, the dead twentieth century political philosopher John Rawls. So let's uh, let's see which one it is. All right. I think I think Matt accidentally oh here we go. Let's try again. All right. Testing. Oh, all right, there we go. Oh there we go. Confusing because the uh the hang up button also looks like an unmute button. <laughs> <laughs> they're right by each other. Fair right, enough. Guys. Yeah, so uh on this particular topic, um I agree with Ben, uh, you know, the point that he was making, um, I don't know where it all goes, but, you know, to my mind, the question is, well, for starters, right, human nature or human tendencies, personalities, favorability to cooperation and all that kind of stuff, obviously, like everything else is a trait that you're going to have a distribution of, right? Some people will be very much, some people very little. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe there are some ranges that you could say, well, humans are like this and ants are like this and whatever. But, you know, I don't just live in the, our life. I don't see how we don't see that there are some people who are very much cooperative, some people very much not. Um, and so talking it in, 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 the, in the broadest sense and trying to p pick out a, a particular way uh, humans are seems a bit misguided. But I think that... <clears throat> You know, if you have the pessimistic view, then what that really suggests is that high level coordination and high level cooperation is not really doable. That I mean, when we're thinking about constructing like states and economies and that kind of thing. Right. Because that is really what all mm. that runs on on some level is some level of getting people to get together and act right and act in good faith and act in a trusting way and that kind of thing. Um, and 
what I always thought was sort of weird about this is that where people try to take it, where they have that pessimistic view and then they say like, well, therefore, you know, we should just have free market capitalism and all the rest of it. Free market capitalism involves an extraordinary amount of cooperation and coordination and trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in the state, the state is the entity that comes in and says, all right, guys, you know, and you got to trust in us and we're trusting you. And everyone needs to follow these rules. Here's a line. You don't cross the line. Here's a and and I guess it's it's weird that people kind of like dis sort of disembody the state as if it's an another entity or almost a non-existent entity when it comes to enforcing the cooperation that's necessary for free market capitalism. Um, but then. As soon as you're like, okay, and then we, well, I would actually like them to enforce cooperation for these other purposes. Then they're like, well, did you know, actually, bureaucrats are corrupt and they can't be trusted to do this and that. <laughs> and I mean, you do actually have these problems in some places, even when they're trying to set up, you know, capitalism, right? I mean, in some of the sort of like cross-country studies on like, why didn't this country develop and why didn't this country develop? You'll definitely read these case studies where it's like, well, they can't get the system of property going because, you know, <laughs> they try and then there's a judge and then but the judge, he knows people. He's not impartial. And so, you know, it, the trust that the contracts are going to be enforced and the trust that the property rule that they're ever going to be, you know, consistently applied breaks breaks apart. And then you can't get to the high level development and organization that you have in other countries. So, like, in some ways, both sides are relying upon a human nature, <laughs> the same kind of human tendency towards cooperation and going along and that kind of thing. And so I feel like the stakes aren't that big, or they shouldn't be, or perhaps, uh, you know, I'm off in my analysis there. Yeah, that's really interesting. Before we, before we go to Nathan, I mean, I, I guess just to, just, just to kind of dig in on that a little bit, I, I mean... Would you agree that you could, like, I don't think this conflicts with anything you said, that, like, okay, so clearly the the rage of human capacity for cooperation and trust uh, can't cap off very low or else we wouldn't be able to have any kind of complex social institutions, including the ones that, that, have, uh, that are necessary for capitalist markets. I take it that that's your point, but that that's consistent with saying that, like, the the range does involve enough bad stuff uh, that it's that like that is one reason that it's important that people with lots of authority have some democratic accountability. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know that the trick of the state is always a tough one, but you would you would like to get to that stage for sure, where the state is very trustworthy um, and but then also, of course, responsive to people and there's a nice give and take there um you know whether it's formally elections and all that kind of stuff i understand like procedural democracy you can run into (laughs) you know undemocratic outcomes but that that seems that seems to be an ideal outcome if you can get to it um but getting to either of those requires a level of like norms and trusting and building of this cooperation that's not just an iron fist imposed by anyone, um, but also which 
could not exist in a world where everyone was mm-hmm. constantly, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, <laughs> uh, clicking the, the cheat button on uh, the prisoner's dilemma, you know, <laughs> like, uh, so. Yeah, makes sense to me. Uh, Nathan, do you have any thoughts? No, I mean, I, I think that's a, an important addition to the, uh, which is that it's not just that, not just that the social democratic institutions that we want uh, re- re- demonstrate this, these kinds of uh, pro-social human instincts, but that even uh, even the institutions that we don't like actually demonstrate uh, that this, this kind of uh, human cooperation is necessary and possible. But you know, I, I, there's sort of a, I mean, the article that I wrote and the and the book that is under review are, are sort of making a quite narrow point, which is that. We need to the the right wing arguments that are built upon the fear of other human beings as essentially as you say always pressing the cheat button in the prisoner's dilemma right uh, that, that are built on the idea that Homo economicus is a realistic model of typical human behavior that people will screw you in every way they can whenever they can these arguments are used politically in order to get people to accept right-wing policies. They're used to justify xenophobia. They're used to explain why we shouldn't empower the state to do this, that, and the other thing. And I think pointing out what, what you just did, as well as a number of the case studies in, in, the, in the book that, that I, I kind of tried to, to highlight, show that the, this, this, this fear is not warranted because we've built many, many, many things on premises completely different from the everyone is in the prisoner's dilemma hurting each other all the time. It's Lord of the Flies, but for this thin veneer theory. And that this, but this, one of the things he points out is that this, this, this fear of other human beings is really very, very widely held. Even though all of the evidence of the kind of institutions we do in fact build goes against it, people really, really distrust one another. They distrust the average stranger in far greater proportions that is actually warranted, right? And that there are a lot of presentations of of stories and case studies that totally misstate what actually happened. I mean, what, it's interesting. There's a whole thing on uh, on Katrina, post Katrina here in New Orleans, where which is presented as the d- descent into this nightmare. Whereas that what actually happened was that everyone sort of, in fact, became more pro-social and more cooperative than they ever had before because it was a situation of necessity in which everyone understood that they shared common interests. And I do think, uh, I I mean, I think that is an an important thing to get across because it is important to get people past this this incredibly pessimistic view if they're going to have any faith in the possibility for serious political change and for their governments and their institutions to ever do anything for them. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess this that last part does get us back to Matt's point, though, because, um, you know, I, I'm very reluctant to just sort of grant this premise that uh, that doing the kinds of things that the left wants to do economically uh, actually involve making the, the government uh, more more powerful because and, and this is this is a point that, Matt, you know, I've seen Matt make many times and, you know, I've quoted him in many places, you know, making this point, uh, which is that like enforcing existing property rights uh, 
involves just as much coercion as as enforcing uh, redistributed uh, pro- you know property rights. I mean that that, that, that like okay, um, you know, saying like you know you have to pay such and such in your taxes, like just to do the simple social democratic case. Yeah, that's backed up by ultimately a, a threat of, of coercion, you know, that there'll be legal consequences somewhere down the line if you don't. But like a no trespass sign is is equally a, a threat of of coercion. And in fact, one that's probably in practice much more likely to actually involve like direct coercion in any immediate way than 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 the tax case, you know, because because if you if you don't leave the property you know, like, like you might literally have the cops called on you right then and there, you know, whereas if you, uh, you know, if, if you just like don't pay the taxes that are due, then like maybe over the course of years, you know, you'll slowly be gone after for that. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. And, and in both cases, the state could, could get corrupted in some way. Right. And, and so if that's your worry, there's, it's kind of a wash between the two. If you're worried that the bureaucrat's going to act in a, in a corrupt way and sometimes they they do of course right i mean that's some of the stories behind uh things like um black uh the expropriation of black property uh mm-hmm. historically right is that it's, it's not as if that wasn't illegal but whoever it was you know had to stamp the, the thing at the deed off you know whatever it was the judge they just looked the other way and now a black farm is now a white farm um, and that happens in, it seems like, uh, other countries from time to time. I read stories out of uh, Palestine that seem to right. be very similar to that. And it's, it's done very much kind of, it looks like it's legal, but obviously it seems corrupted. Um, and so, you know, like I said, it's just kind of a wash on that front. Now, one other thing I would add, and, and maybe this is just an elaboration of the other point, but I would mm. that the, the case of Italy was... When I was reading all this like cross-country literature back in the day, the case of Italy was the was the interesting one on this one because Italy seems to have a very corrupt uh, government um, situation. And so one of the interesting questions is just like, okay, how do people actually adapt? How do people mm-hmm. actually live in a society that is kind of working the way you know some of the conservatives would make you think it would work, right? Where the state's unreliable because they're this and that, and you know, you've got this extra legal like mafia that actually has pretty big power uh, and is always extracting money from businesses and all that kind of stuff. Like, how do people act and how do they react to that? And the answer seems to be that they they uh, rely much more on on smaller kin networks. You got a lot more like sort of small family businesses and stuff like that because you need those ties to get the trust to make sure things are going to go okay, right? You can't rely as much on the laws and the enforcement of them and that kind of stuff. That's some of the stuff I've read. Again, I'm not an expert in it, but I've read some books about this. And so what always struck me about that, bringing it back to the point that you guys are talking about was like in, in some ways it is the creation of a really good, well-run kind of capitalist society like mm-hmm. do it in the sense that the government's running it fairly and whatever, that kind of actually gives people the ability to act that way, <laughs> to, act, to act in a very kind of shitty way towards others. Because, it, you know, in these 
in these sort of Italian type scenarios where people are keeping their network small and relying on kind of personal touch and relationships. In those scenarios, you can't really fuck people over as much because if you get kind of booted out of your little circle, like that's a that's a devastating outcome. Like if you start screwing people over and your family like disowns you or the little business network that you have won't deal with you anymore, you might as well be exiled out into the wilderness in some ways because the overall society is not as trusting of just entering into random arrangements with people because they don't feel it's going to be enforced or that it could get corrupted. And then your little group doesn't feel that way toward you now either. So let's say so it's. So that so in that case, it seems like, you you know, you become more humbled and more willing to act very pro-socially, at least within your group. And you can only act anti-socially if you know that, hey, when I do this, it's OK. Like my property is still going to be here. The courts are still going to take care of me, even if someone tried to do something to me. You know, <laughs> this is why we see con artists in the United States who just move on to the next thing as soon as one thing goes. Of course, <laughs> yeah. Why don't they, why don't they fear that someone's going to just go put a, you know, put a bullet in them, you know, like on some level, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> you're the only way you behave that way. I'm obviously not saying you should, but like on some level, you are very confident that the institutions of your society and the state are going to take care of you and protect you from that kind of thing. Or you wouldn't behave as extreme as some people do behave in business and, you know, scams. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this, this actually gets to uh, something that I think I, I don't, I don't remember if Nathan actually wrote it or, you know, it was, it was definitely in current affairs. I remember reading a while back, like a year or two back about the, about economic freedom rankings, uh, you know, and um, you know, which is something that I've been thinking about lately uh and wrote something for for Jacobin about which is that um you know there are these these rankings like the Fraser Institute does one of them uh you know I think like Cato and Heritage and a, a bunch of these different institutes do these rankings that allegedly rank something called economic freedom uh or or sometimes it just says freedom without even the economic uh and and it's often really unclear you know what the hell they're talking about and and one of them that that I did take a closer look at recently was the uh, the Fraser Institute in Canada uh which is you know which has rankings that are beloved by by many libertarians because they show that all the good things are correlated with with economic freedom and all the bad things are correlated with the absence of it uh and you know one of the things that I gave them a hard time about is that if you actually look at the methodology one of the things they give countries economic freedom points for is like rule of law and like there not being very much corruption you know which is which doesn't really seem to have anything to do with what's in dispute between advocates of capitalism and socialism and you know social democracy and laissez-faire and all of that stuff uh, so so on some level that's kind of absurd because if you're going to use rankings in order to try to score points in those debates you know you better not include stuff like that but the, the sort of germ of reasonableness in there that gets at Matt's point is that, yeah, I mean, you can't have a functional capitalist society, you know, with, without a decent amount, you know, or, you know, you can't have a, a, a high functioning capitalist society without a decent amount of rule of law and, you know, and, and, and a decent, like a, a decently a low amount of corruption, all that stuff, even though, of course, you know, there are going to be massive exceptions, uh, but of course you also, you know, but like that, that just, that just seems to cut both ways for capitalism or socialism or, 
or any other way of trying to organize a complicated society. Yeah, I, uh, I, I've looked at those indexes before. I've written a number of pieces about them. And, uh, yeah, I know that, that the Fraser Institute one is funny because of that, right? It essentially defines capitalism as low corruption. And then it, it concludes that, my God, the most capitalist countries are, are the least corrupt um, and the most well-functioning. And it's like, well, yes, of course, because if a socialist country was functional and working well, your index would now call them capitalists um right which is know. which is which is which is why according to those indexes norway and sweden are much more cap- are much more capitalist than say haiti yeah of course yes yes because in those countries you know the uh, state ownership is accomplished in a very uh, orderly way when you pass bills and these kinds of things and you know so it's okay like singapore is another good example of this singapore um, they they usually rank pretty high in these kinds of things. And what was interesting about Singapore is, you know, when it became this uh, independent country in, I don't know, the 40s or 50s or something like that, it, over the course of the next few decades, one, was essentially dictatorially ruled, but I don't know, none of these indexes seem to bat an eye at that. Um, but in that, in that period, it was, they, the government essentially snatched up snatched up almost all the land in the country um there is still a little bit of private land in singapore but it went from being like 20 percent state-owned to being like 80 percent state-owned they just systematically went in and essentially used eminent domain to force sales of all the land to the government but it was done very above board you know it's done very orderly they passed laws but it's like i you know if I'm saying, what's so, is this socialist or not? What I'm looking at is, <laughs> did they expropriate almost all the land? Yes, of course, they did pay, make some cash payments to the people. But the expropriation of land seems to weigh higher. The fact that they did that than how they did it, whether it was done in a clean way in which everyone was fairly treated and all that kind of stuff. Um, but those indexes would, would take that action, look at the uh, clean way in which it was done, and say, ah, Freedom, <laughs> capitalism. Um, the other thing is the uh, the heritage one. Um, they look at you know regulation, and you know how how overregulated are you? And when you go and you cut through, okay, look at the method, look at the method, look at the method. How are they adding up? Like how heavily regulated you are? The way in which they do that it primarily is they they take this thing called the doing business the ease of doing business index which um, <laughs> the world bank or imf or something puts out and the way this works is they just you just add up the steps that it takes to start a new entity to like register a corporation essentially and to like get all your books ready to go and like set up electricity for a new building or something like that. Um, And like what they're really measuring there is essentially the efficiency of your bureaucratic arrangement. Like how efficient are they at entity registration? And so the U.S. ends up taking a big tumble here because they look at how hard it would be to set up an LLC in New York City. Mm -hmm. And to set up an LLC in New York City, you have to 
register it not only with the IRS, but you've got to register it with the state government, and then you've got to register it with the city government, and then there's some other fourth thing you have to register it for, and then like separately you got to do the unemployment thing. Like it's like a hassle to do all this shit. And then you go and you're like, okay, so cool. They're saying Sweden's way more efficient. And it's like, yeah, in Sweden, you just file like one thing to the central government and you're good to go. And it's like, okay. So Sweden, right, but Sweden is more capitalist because it's, it doesn't have this goofy <laughs> federalist thing that makes it complicated to run a business, you know? Yeah, right. Because, because of course, that's what that's what's generally a dispute between socialists and libertarians. Like, you know, how many places you should have to register a new business. Right. And, and then, of course, the conservatives, that's what they want to do, right? They want to have a nice central state <laughs> are much more well administered, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, which, which is right. I mean, it's a huge equivocation. I mean, like saying that it's like more free market in the sense that it has less of a really specific kind of regulation that it's not clear that conservatives want us to have less of and, uh, and more, and also that like socialists, typically don't care how much we have. I mean, like this, the sorts of things that the sorts of regulation uh, that, you know, I mean, even just like putting aside expropriation uh, or, you know, even, you know, even redistribution and like just thinking about regulation I mean, the kinds of regulation that socialists care about are, you know, like environmental laws and labor laws and, you know, laws against racial discrimination, you know, like, like, like I've never, you know, I, I, I haven't read the, uh, the sort of like DSA statement somewhere, you know, demanded that there be more steps to, you know, to register, you know, to register a business. But anyway, uh, <laughs> thank you. Uh, thank you for the call, Matt. That was awesome. By the way, uh, I would be more than happy to answer the question you asked me on, on, on Twitter, but uh, I'm not sure uh, there, there's some confidentiality issues there. So, so just, just uh, to shoot me a DM. All right. Um, Nathan, uh, I do not, I, um, you know, I know that like probably your writing schedule is such that like with one hand while you were taking calls right now, you were probably working on an article. I was actually formatting a, uh, an article for a posting on the website. Of course, of course. I can't write and, and think at the same time. Cause I do have to apply my, my thinking power to this, to this call, but my, uh, I can, I can format. What, what's the, uh, what's the article? Well, this is just a transcript of the interview I did with uh, former Harper's editor, Lewis Lapham, uh, who was recently on the podcast to talk about his book available from Orr Books, uh, Money and Class in America, which is excellent and which people should pick up. Uh, he's a totally fascinating guy. All right, cool. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, I, I have, you know, I, I mean, I sort of... Um, I sort of feel like it's a shame that other than other than my deep love for the state, you know, we, we really didn't get into uh, to that much in terms of uh, areas of disagreement, you know, uh, which uh, which would be which would be fun for people. But I'm not going to try to force it in this uh, in this call. Uh, but just out of curiosity, like what is in terms of actual writing, uh, what are you working on right now? Um, I have. So I'm going to have a, a book uh, coming out uh, shortly, a collection. I'm, I'm reissuing a collection of essays I did on um, 
uh, compiling all my profiles of uh, horrible right wingers. Uh, it's going to be called <laughs> the enemies, the enemies of social justice. And I got a new one I'm working on for that on Thomas Sowell, who a lot of people have asked me to write about Thomas Sowell, who's fascinating to me because uh, he's the, probably the best-selling economics writer in the country, and mm-hmm. yet nobody in economics takes him seriously. And in fact, one of the whole reasons I got into making current affairs in the first place was I pitched a in 2015 a piece on Thomas Sowell to a magazine and they rejected it saying who cares about Thomas Sowell nobody nobody <laughs> listens to that guy and I thought that was unbelievable because I, and that really illustrated me to, to me the divide between you know the, this 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 bubble where where progressive publications just assume that anything that they think is discreditable must not be listened to by anyone and it's completely wrong and so that's why we started doing all of these profiles of these guys but you know i i never in five years i still hadn't gotten around to writing the big thomas soul article so i'm finally finally putting that together yeah fair enough that that's funny i actually also uh often get people saying should do segments and stuff about about thomas soul which which you know someday i'm sure we will uh maybe have you on for that but uh but yeah well when i release the article we could do, do a deep dive yeah for sure um yeah i mean i hate i hate the attitude that you're you're talking about i mean i run into that all the time right like like when uh the the book uh <sighs> you know myth and mayhem the uh uh, leftist critique of Jordan Peterson, which, you know, I mean, my, my name's on the cover. I didn't write very much of it. Like there's a chapter by me and, you know, and, and most of it's written by Matt McManus and, um, yeah, yeah who's great. I like, I like what Matt. Yeah. Does. Yeah. Huge fan of that. Uh, but, um, yeah, Matt and, and Conrad Hamilton and, uh, Marion Trejo was the, was the other author. Uh, but I, I think, uh, but like when that came out, you know, in, in 2020, you know, just in time for us not to be able to do any events for it, uh, then, uh, you know, like, like something I, I saw, I got a lot was like, why, why are you talking about Jordan Peterson? I mean, like, like, like he's like, you know, he's yesterday's news. Yeah. It's like, okay. So like you personally have lost interest. That's fine. Right. You know, but like also here's Amazon's like yeah. 20 most bought and read books of the week. And you can see that for like, the 10,000th week in a row, you know, maybe, you know, uh, uh, 12 rules for life, you know, is, is on that list. Right. You know, like, like more people are, Oh yeah. More people are today, right now, this second, right. While we're talking, right. More people are reading books by Jordan Peterson or listening to lectures by Jordan Peterson than the combined audiences of the 10 things that you who are listening to this, like the most, uh, so like you know yeah it, it, it seems really self-defeating to think that stuff like that is it isn't is it worth our notice um you know that like and and i think so um and yeah i think yeah soul like i've always meant to read more of his, his stuff so i'd be able to to do this better uh i i know like what i have looked at a little bit is the the, the cosmic justice stuff which is you know, not directly about economics, uh, although that that ties in. But it's 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 more in my uh, you know in my quarter since it's like about you know abstract philosophical arguments unmoored by you know by factual evidence. But uh, it's you know, but as far as I can tell, his point is that uh, crazy leftists who want to have a more equal society you know, or just like demand, you know, have this like absurd demand that life be fair and that like there'd be like justice on some kind of cosmic level. Yeah. 
Uh, but that's ridiculous because of course there's like contingency and bad luck and all that stuff in life and it's ineradicable. And, and when I hear that, you know, maybe, like I said, I, have, I haven't read the book with this title. Maybe when I do, I'll see that I'm, I'm being unfair, but like my, my immediate gut level response is like, okay, so you could write the same book at any time in human history, right? Like that you could, you could say, you know, look, the, well, and they do. The right r- does write this same book at every point in human history in response to every social movement. Yeah, right. I mean, like saying, oh, look, yeah, sure, that would be nice if there weren't people who were born as serfs and people who were born as nobles, but life is unfair. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's unrealistic and destructive to think that you can have a completely fair universe. And, you know, like, like it, it just seems like, you know, this critique <coughs> is as good or as bad you know, no matter what social arrangement is being defended. It, it's true. Uh, but what's interesting about Sol is that he's a very good writer and he's very rhetorically powerful and he's very good. And this is why it'd be interesting if you read some of his stuff is he's very good at what, what we call the, the sort of rhetoric of reason, right? And yeah. using the word logic and using saying, you know, the, well, the, the left is unwilling to face facts. <laughs> I care about this sort of solid world of concrete facts and realities. He talks a lot about human nature as, as flawed. He talks a lot about Thomas Hobbes, right? And he tells this story, essentially, in which these delusional leftists, these arrogant leftists, believe that they, uh, their visions their personal visions for what constitutes justice ought to be um, imposed upon an unwilling populace. And it always goes wrong because they don't understand that you can't engineer society, that human beings are, are live a tragic life in which, in which everything is kind of fixed in, in place. Um, and only small incremental bits of progress can be made here and there. And free market capitalism is the best we can hope for. But he tells his story very well, and he presents himself as this kind of dissident intellectual who, you know, the inte- – well, he hates – no, he hates the term intellectual. He just sees right, – right, constantly right. talking about the intellectuals, the arrogant intellectuals who want to change the world, whereas I tell the truth, and that's why they ignore me, and that's why they cast me out. And, and, par- and, and funnily enough, because they do in fact ignore him – it enables him to keep pushing this story because he says, ah, look, see, they don't review my books because they can't deal with my arguments. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, which is, which is why stuff like that is always, is always such a gift uh, to, to these, these people. I mean, like, like, I, I mean, in, in cases uh, much more extreme than Thomas Sowell, right? Like, uh, like, uh, you know, in, you know, like I'm sure whatever, like however silly I might find the core soul argument, you know, he's certainly like a world historic genius compared to like Milo Yiannopoulos, but, uh, but Milo, uh, you know, but like what was Milo's whole shtick based on, right? He was, he was, he was, he was the dangerous, you know, like, like, yeah. you know, various things with the adjective dangerous on them, you know, uh, tour. And, uh, and, and I don't think he would have had a shtick to go on if not for, uh, attempts to to deplatform him because that allowed him to say, you know, the the the, you know, the the sort of raw truth that I'm speaking is so dangerous uh, to to progressives that uh, that they they have they, they're trying to shut me up, you know, because 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 I'm I'm so edgy and so important and you know and, and all this stuff that uh, you know because because they just have no response 
to the amazing things I'm saying. And of course the amazing mm-hmm. things that he's saying are just like, you know, what you, the uncle that you like the least says at Thanksgiving dinner, but like less articulate. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that the, you know, I think that the best response is, is always, I mean, pretty much, I mean, like, I think that like there are exceptions maybe in a tactical way for people who are so marginal that like, you can just, you know, let them stay marginal and that might be the bad for the best, but like, you know, just about always, you know, I, I think the best response is to, is to engage with, ah. engage with these guys, you know, so, so that in, they, he left out one part of Milo Yiannopoulos' stick, which is the posh British accent, which <laughs> if you notice in his speeches, he imitates, he's clearly watched a lot of videos of Christopher Hitchens and Camille Paglia and if you watch videos of the two of them and then you watch him, you notice that he incorporates their mannerisms, their rhythms of speaking. And so that's a big part of how he gave himself a, a, a credibility. It's a, and if you want to have that credibility for yourself, <laughs> uh, this, is, this is what you can do. Just All right. Well, pro I, will, I, I, will, I will work on that. Uh, yeah. No, I, I actually remember uh, just before Milo was, was finally um, – actually successfully um you know quashed which was not by which was not by lefty platforming attempts that's what built his career but he was successfully quashed by being deplatformed by the right or you know not deplatformed but you know by, by being dropped very hard by the right you know that they they were no longer interested in, in sponsoring his uh his activities uh but just before that i remember he was on the bill maher show uh you know and uh, uh real time and I remember uh, Mars saying, oh, you remind me, you know, you seem like a young gay Christopher Hitchens. And even though I've made this exact point, like in that Myth and Mayhem book, uh, in my chapter, and I make this point about how um, Christopher Hitchens during the decade of his life where he was saying like the kind of least interested and compelling things was wildly popular, you know, and, and, and part of that clearly has to do with the, uh, the speech patterns. Um, but like all I could, you know, all I could think uh, when I was, um, you know, when I heard Bill Maher say that is my God, like Bill Maher is such an empty vessel that like all he's registering is how, how my yeah. sounds like, you know, that like, yes. you know, cause, cause like, you yeah. know, like whatever. I mean, obviously I wrote a book about Christopher Hitchens. I find him interested, you know, as, as deplorable as some of his late life views were, but, um, but like Christopher Hitchens, who Marr actually had as a guest on his show many times at his worst was like a million times more interesting uh, than Milo Yiannopoulos. But like, you know, I, I guess all, you know, it, it's almost like the, uh, the, the peanuts thing where every time the adults talk is just music, you know, that it's like, it's like, it's like really, really all my, all Bill Maher is registering. Is that, yeah. Well, that's yeah. Is that, Consistent oh, with oh, my like estimation a, of Bill Maher. There's like a posh British accent and like, you know, it's Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, yeah. You can say anything. Yeah. Oh, must be crazy. Hello there, Christopher. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, Chardonnay. Let's uh, remember to unmute yourself with the, uh, the thing that looks like a microphone and not to accidentally hang up. Uh, hey, I had just had a uh, quick question uh, about, uh, are you familiar with the, the podcast seriously wrong and their concept uh, library of socialism. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, I love yeah, those guys. I was wondering if you had any thoughts of that and whether or not you think it's a, sort of a viable model for a socialist society. Oh, I don't know what the, the thing you're talking about. I know them, but I don't know. Oh, the, the library socialism bit. Um, I, just, I don't know. I, I don't think I could explain it properly here, but I would just I would love to hear your thoughts on it. I find it very sort of inspiring, and I also find it to be a very plausible model of a socialist society and one that can sp- sort of spring out of existing institutions uh, by expanding the library system uh, to incorporate other things, not just books, but, you know, technology and clothing and, and things like that. Um, and, and sort of expand access to commodities through a library system. Um, I've sent an article to you, Ben, on Twitter that sort of gives a pretty good overview of of what the idea behind it is. Um, but I just, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it if you ever get a chance to to look at it. Uh, yeah, so so did you send this in a Twitter DM or, or did you, did you tag me? Uh, no, just, tag I me? just tweeted it. Okay, okay, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll look for that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, I think the idea that you could have something like a library to distribute certain kinds of goods. I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll, you know, I'd be interested also in hearing what, what, what Nathan thinks. I mean, like just, just for myself, just off the top of my head, I mean, I think that whereas like, if this is supposed to be like a general replacement for market mechanisms, then I think that there's like a little bit more burden of proof, but I mean, the idea that you could do more things with that, and that would be good. Certainly sounds good to me. I mean, the, the line I always use, uh, when, um, you know, every once in a while, some conservative or libertarian, uh, will try to, uh, to milk, you know, some kind of, uh, yet you live in society, you know, hypocrisy argument off of the fact that I'm a socialist yet I sell books, uh, you know, my my response is actually always one that I, I stole from Nathan, you know, which is, uh, you know, which is that um, I'm actually, you know, actually as a radical socialist, I support a government program whereby uh, it's paid for by by taxation and, 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 and like the government would actually buy up books and uh, and then let anybody who wanted to read them for free. Uh <laughs> But, yeah, yeah. But then what they do is they they say, "Oh, well, if you're a socialist, can I have your book for free?" And then what they never expect is you just go, "Yes, in fact, in fact, you can, you can have my book for free. You can have it through the socialist book lending program that's free." Uh, like, oh, well, I, I wanted it. I wanted it as my private property. Like, well, I don't really believe in that because I'm a socialist, so I believe in the yeah, library. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's it, you know the, the hypocrisy charge is much harder when it's just that like oh you want exclusive use. It's like well, I mean I don't you know I'm not I'm not I'm not against people having that, but I mean you know what makes me a socialist yeah. is is not that I support that right. It's that, it's that I support yeah. the collective stuff so you can get the benefit for free, which is exactly what the uh, the library uh, the library does. No, yeah. No, I think uh, I, I'm glad the caller brought this up because uh, I, I've, I've, I've written an article called Why Public Libraries Are Amazing and essentially making the point that a library is, in fact, a prefigurative institution in many ways that if it didn't exist would seem radical. In fact, I think it would be hard to introduce the public library today yes. um, <laughs> if, it didn't, if it didn't exist because – the, the premise, I mean, you'd get all, you already know what all the arguments you get, which is, well, we don't give away, uh, and, and, you know, art supplies for free. Why should we give away books? We don't give away healthcare for free. Why should we, why should the taxpayers subsidize books? 
right? And so it is, in fact, something that embodies a, a lot of the ways that we, we want many, many institutions to op- operate, which is that it's not means tested. Um, it's available <laughs> universally to all. It's completely free. You, uh, we invest a lot of money in it to just give everyone access to knowledge. And I agree that it, I, you know, one of the things we can do that helps people see what the socialist vision is, is expand and beef up the public library system. Because first off, people love public libraries. They, mm-hmm. they, you know, the, the, the polling on them is very, very positive. Um, and it shows how these sorts of things should and can work. And so we want, I mean, I think we need, you know, far, I've, I've written about oh, the, the big problem of uh, paywalls um, in accessing academic articles and, mm-hmm. and newspapers. And I very much think that, I mean, the first thing we need is for libraries to actually have be universal free databases of all human knowledge. And then also expanding into, yes, libraries are also studio spaces. Libraries are also uh, places that will give you the tools you need to create whatever you like. Um, yeah, I think, I, I, think that it's, I think that's absolutely the direction we should be moving in. We've got a... Uh, we got a big empty building here in New Orleans, the municipal auditorium, and they're debating what to do with it. And I went to a community meeting, and uh, my, my only aim in going to the community meeting was put, to put in people's heads the idea that we should turn it into another branch of the public library. Because I think that the more we can do and it was weird because that hadn't come up as a possibility because people sort of forget that libraries are a thing. <laughs> um, so it's very, very important that we remind people of libraries because they are probably the most radical institution that we have. And that's not to say that they are, in fact, full socialism, um, but that they are an institution that embodies our values. And we should be pushing for more and better libraries all the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that there are, I'm sure, other things that are like, reusable goods that you could have libraries or library like institutions uh that would be publicly funded that you know that let people you know use them for you know a certain term of time for free and and that seems that seems great to me i also really like i should say uh your point about um you know paywalls uh you know which you know i i think are probably you know Right now, you know, we live in a sad world and, you know, are a necessary evil for many media institutions, but that there's something particularly objectionable and honestly kind of like just really gross about the fact that um, academic ba- databases are are paywalled for people who aren't affiliated with universities, mm-hmm. you know, that you can get past oh, yeah. them by having the, the university credentials, but but otherwise, you know, you have to pay to access like JSTOR or whatever that because that, that's, that's just such a... Um, you know, there's something so grim about that, that like, just like that stuff that's like publicly available, sort of publicly available research uh, is, is, uh, is available to you if you're in like the, uh, the, the research cast for free, you know, but, but everybody else, you know, mm-hmm. has to, has to pay if, if, if they want to, uh, you know, if, if they want to, you know, access it. I mean, I, I don't know that I can even exactly articulate why, but there, there's something really grotesque about that. Well, I mean, it, to me, the reason is the uh, the exclusion of most of the majority of people from the fruits of human knowledge, right? right? Things that are, that are the very definition of something that should be open to all. I mean, it's, it's like keeping people out of a public park, um, but it's, this, is, this is the 
this is the, the discoveries that the human mind has made and to put those behind a, a gate and prevent people from learning um, when there's not really much cost and this should obviously be a basic human entitlement and it, it's not even costly to distribute it. Um, <laughs> that's, you, you know, there's no technological barrier to giving universal access to all printed knowledge, right? Google Books has a database of all the books ever. Right, they scanned all the books, but nobody can look at it because of rights issues. <laughs> yeah, right. And and again, I mean, I I can see that like if uh, if things are you know being being sold, you know, I mean, it's 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 hard right now to um, you know there are issues about you know about compensated authors and all that stuff. But I mean, if something you know like like yeah, that like that that if you want to read like a journal article that for millions of, you know, I mean, I don't know exactly how many people, but certainly at least hundreds of thousands of people, you know, is is available for free, no problem. Uh, you know, and, and but say then like the majority outside of, of the academic cast, you know, aren't aren't allowed to to look at it. Uh you know, without, without pain, you know, I mean, it's, it's like, I think particularly a, you know, at a front, you know, I mean, just, just that you'd have that kind of, you know, two tiered, uh, two tiered system when, you know, it wouldn't even really cost you hardly anything to like, yeah, I mean, you're going to have like what, you know, however many more downloads a month, you know, because, uh, you know, because you, you have anybody who's interested in this obscure academic area, you know, could, uh, could access it. I mean, it just doesn't seem realistic that that would, uh, that that would cost you, uh, very much, um, you know, very much extra. Uh, but, um, but I want to, um, but yeah, I, I do want to. I do want to get back to to uh, to the caller. Uh, are, are there particularly, you know, are there particular things that the the seriously wrong people were thinking of, or you were thinking of, that would be like sort of obvious further cases for using like the library model to distribute? Um, I think in general, it would be commodities that. Um, I mean, in, in sort of the utopian sense, it would be pretty much all commodities. But I think one of the brilliant things about the idea of library socialism is that it can be expanded over time incrementally and sort of absorb part of the market um, and then deal with the fallout. So it's not just, you know, from one day to another. You can start by saying, okay, from now on, things like, just for an example, uh, lawnmowers. Things you don't yeah. use every day. So on, on, a, on a particular street um, in the suburbs, every single person with a lawn will have their own lawnmower, which is a waste of resources because no one uses their lawnmower 24-7 every day. Um, and it, it's a, a, lot of, a lot of things like that that you only use frequently that you don't really need to own your own, you know... Uh, yeah, it would, it would be good to it'd be good to have at least the the option of uh, of getting it uh, of like just you know that people could that people knew knew yeah. that they didn't have to buy it because uh, you know you could always like if you're a lawnmower fanatic you know that you could buy it the same way that like I buy lots you know lots of books that I oh, could sure, get out of the library you know because because yeah, like, yeah, I'm a yeah. hoarder about books but like you could. Uh, but like you would know that you had the option. It's like, yeah, I could just I could just go to the lawnmower library and, and, and check uh, and check what out. Yeah, I think that makes I mean I think that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, yeah, and also like kitchen equipment, things like if you only use a blender like three times times a year to make watering yeah, 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 or whatever, like you don't need to own your own blender. And it's also like about resource management because it's really on a finite planet. It's a waste of resources that we 
we own so many things that we only use very infrequently. Where it would be it would be a much better use of resources if we could just go somewhere and check them out and then use them. And when we don't need them anymore, we can just get put them back and they'll get cleaned and repaired for the next person. Um, and I would also say that. It's it's also about sort of the social space of libraries themselves. So I should probably say that I'm a student. I'm studying to be a social worker, but I have a student job at a library. And it it has so many functions. Everything from I see homeless people go there to either use the Wi-Fi or the computers to read the news, to have a warm place to stay. Um, students who go there for free help with their homework from other students who volunteer to, to help people with their homework. There's free legal advice uh, two or three times a week where you can go and talk to a lawyer. Um, and, and there are lots of things like that within the library system that I think could, could really, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a really interesting, as you said, prefigurative institution that has a lot of potential to sort of um, to, to to sort of inspire ways to think about how uh, a socialist um, society could look and how it would function, um, but but I would I'd really appreciate it if you take a look at the article I sent you because I think yeah. you'd find it quite quite interesting and I find it myself to be uh, one of the more inspiring new ideas uh, I've come. Yeah, from. absolutely. Um... And, and actually also connected to what we we're talking about with university databases for, for like physical university libraries. I hate that too, especially because I grew up in East Lansing, Michigan, uh, right by, you know, like Michigan State University has like a giant university library. And to their credit, anybody can just walk in and, you know, and, and, yeah. and, uh, and there's no problem. You know, you can, uh, you can even get like if you're an East Lansing resident who has no connection to MSU, you, you, know, you can even get a community borrower card. Uh, where, and, and it really kind of disgusted yeah. me like later in my life when like some of the schools that I went to, uh, would like have like literally you couldn't walk into the university library without swiping a university ID card, you know, because yeah. I guess they're just so worried that like if the, I don't know if, if the, if the, uh, if the unwashed masses were able to go to the library, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't even yeah, know yeah. how to end that sentence because I don't know what the concern is. It's like, it reminds me of uh, Howard Zinn's uh, memoir. You can't, uh, it's something called something like you can't be a neutral, neutral on a moving trend. And um, in that, yeah. you know, and it's, it's also funny, you know, cause this is in Atlanta where I now live. Uh, he's, you know, but uh, Zinn taught for many years at Morehouse and, you know, when he was involved in the civil rights movement in Atlanta, there was a, uh, uh, there was a point where like the specific thing they were trying to do was to desegregate the uh, public libraries. And, you know, he would talk to people and be like, Oh, you know, there's going to be a riot if they, if they let, you know, black people into the library. And he's like, really, there's going to be a riot like at the library, <laughs> you, know, of all, you know, of all places, you know, that, that seems very unlikely, uh, you know? So it's like kind of the yeah. same thing. It's like, what, what do you like? What exactly are you terrified of as, as the consequence if, if, uh, you know, if if just like ordinary people who are connected to the university were able to like walk into the university library and and look at the books and God forbid maybe check a few of them out, uh, but but yeah, the other thing I also really like about yeah. what you're saying is that in really practical terms, um, you know, this is you know right. I mean, just kind of thinking about the state of the socialist left right now, 
you know, in, in some ways things are really grim, you know, with the, uh, the, the sort of second defeat of Bernie Sanders and, uh, and, and some of what's happened since then, uh, you know, and, and so it, yeah. it seems like, you know, a lot of, I don't want to be too doom and gloom here. I mean, there are obviously more socialists who are elected to, to Congress in 2020 and all of that, but like, it, it, it seems like, you know, a lot of the bigger breakthroughs for a while are probably going to happen on the local or maybe state level. And, uh, and there are unfortunately lots of things that are important to us. That you just can't do at that level. Right. I mean, like the, uh, uh, you know, it, it can't, uh, yeah. you know, like, you know, state governments, you know, can't do anything about the war in Yemen, you know, or, or for that matter, um, you know, can't probably even stop health and private health insurance companies legally from doing business in their state. But like, this is something you could do at an extremely local level. I mean, like if you had like a, a bunch of like DSA members who just took over like local government in some tiny place, like you could, you could yes. absolutely just establish like the, uh, the, the lawnmower and kitchen equipment library. I mean, that'd be no problem. Yeah. But it's also like, so at, at my local library, you can also um, check out things like toys mm-hmm. And I think they're starting to do sports equipment and things like that. And one of the beautiful things about it is that kids who come from low-income households have have access to these things. So they're not so they're not excluded from being able to participate in like certain activities because their parents don't have the money because they can check out that equipment at the library. And I just think that it's it's like it's a, I should say I live in Denmark, so my library experience is probably a little bit different. Yeah, I was, was going to say I think that's probably better than anybody on the public library yeah, yeah, yeah. with the states. Um, uh, but I just I yeah. find it generally inspiring, and and, and I I'll just be really interested to hear also what sort of critiques you have of it because I have a tendency to sort of just yeah. get blinded by how wonderful I think it is. That, um, I, yeah. I don't see all the issues with it. Um, but yeah, libraries are generally just positive institutions that everyone loves. And I think it's it's it would be really good, maybe even strategically as a Trojan horse to <laughs> introduce uh, more socialist elements into society. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for the call. Yeah. Thanks. All right. Well, hey, uh, we are uh, we are getting uh, to uh, to the the uh, the two hour mark, uh, so uh, we should uh, we should probably uh, should probably wrap it up. Uh, but um, you know, apart um, you know, apart from the uh, the forays into your anti semitism and union busted and whatnot, did you enjoy it? <laughs> oh yeah, I, I I love this format. I, I think it's tremendous, actually. I. Um... I really do like. I was on Bree's college show recently, uh, Brianna Joy Gray, and uh, I, I think these shows are wonderful. There's really been an element missing in podcasts of definitely the listener interaction, and uh, I, I think this uh, this fills a much much needed uh, space. Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much, Nathan. Uh, people should check out all of Nathan's stuff. Well, most of Nathan's stuff. He also he also writes books. Uh, at uh, current uh, current affairs, uh, and um, what's uh, yeah, uh, and uh, and yeah, I I know I'm going to be extremely interested to uh, uh, to check out the uh, the one about you know the one about all the right wingers and uh, and this is a 
you know, yeah. that, that is definitely, that is, uh, that is my jam. Uh, so, uh, cause you know, and, and this is, this is also something that, you know, that I've, I've always really appreciated about you that like you have, you know, you'll sort of take the the time to, instead of doing the, the thing that socials sometimes do, you know, where, where they, they say, Oh, well, you know, here's this, you know, here are these people who, have this this worldview that seems totally alien and kind of repulsive to me, and so you know I, I've you know here's like my paragraph about why that's bad, and you know now I'm going to move on, and you know we we can uh, you know we can argue about stuff that I find interesting, you know because I I accept the premises, uh, you know you actually uh, you actually devote a lot of time to to doing like these these like you know ten thousand word takedowns of uh, of, yeah. um, of of people who like. Unfortunately, if you're going to live in the real world, a, a vastly greater number of the people that we want to reach out to are listening to than 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 the people that we would we would like them to to listen to. You know, true. You have to, you know, like yeah, you uh, you know you have to, uh, uh, you know, in terms of this stuff, as in many other areas, you, know, you can make your own history, but not in uh, circumstances of your own choosing. Uh, all right, uh, thank you so much, Nathan. Uh, so thanks, Ben. Uh, probably fun. going to do another one of these. I am guessing on Tuesday night. Uh, I will. I'll figure that out a day or two in advance. Uh, this. Uh, this is. Uh, this is really fun. I have. I've really enjoyed both of the episodes we've done of this so far. Um, and uh, and yeah. Uh, thank you for listening. Left is best. <laughs>